Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. And if you're joining us online, good morning to you also. The book of Acts, chapter 12, we are finishing the 12th chapter. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 12. We will stand and read verses 20 through 25. And if you have your place in that section of scripture, please stand. And if you don't have your place, please stand. Beginning at verse 20 through 25. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry They also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Please be seated. Well, let's just go right to the part about the worms eating him. (laughs) A persecutor's failure. That's what uh, we are considering. And the story uh, about Herod's fate uh, interrupts the story of the Christians moving forward Um, in the midst of this persecution that he had launched. And uh, we're learning how the persecution subsided because, remember, he had James killed, tried to kill Peter, and then he goes up to take care of political business to the north, and these events take place. So when we finished with Peter escaping jail, we might say, well, whatever happened to Agrippa, the one who was persecuting uh, the leadership of the church, at least targeting the apostles at first. Again, verse 2 of chapter 12, then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, meaning he beheaded him. And then he sought to do the same to Peter. And so his fate is recorded. He met with an appropriate destiny uh, befitting of a persecutor. But I want to take a moment to just pause and talk about the goodness of God, and the severity of God. Nahum the prophet wrote, Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Now we understand the Bible has terms that belong to this. He is a God of vengeance. That's just a fact. In fact, he tells us, vengeance is mine. He will not acquit the wicked. You, you won't just get a pass because it's you, because you're impressed with yourself, or maybe others were impressed with you. Well, that won't do. The main fact of his nature in regard to this, however, is that he is slow of anger. He is slow of anger, great in power, but he will not let the wicked get away with it. And yet we read, Micah the prophet say, Ask this 
rhetorical question, who is like God? Who is a God like you? Micah 7.18. Pardoning iniquity. This all fits together. Of course, in the New Testament, Peter, when the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, has come upon the, the believers, he ends up preaching, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Psalm 107, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. There was a time when I had a problem with this goodness of God. As a believer, spiritually, willfully, I, have, I accept it. But mentally, I'm struggling with it. When you see so much evil, get away with evil. Where is the goodness of God? Well, the problem is not in the teaching of, of the scripture from God to man. It's in understanding and listening to what is being said. Give thanks, for he is good. Why? For his mercy endures forever. Good in his nature, because he is slow to anger. Why? So that he can forgive. God is good in that he lets sinners live. He is good that he makes a way for us to get to heaven. It has a spiritual meaning. The carnal meaning is, well, God, I measure his goodness by what he gives to me and what he withholds from me. But I'm not factoring eternity into that necessarily. I'm factoring life right now, good health, finances, safety, whatever it may be. Those things are important for sure. But that's not the, the, the main point of God's goodness is that he lets sinners into heaven. And when you get to heaven... Oh, won't you know it? His judgments, they are real, as I mentioned. As the scripture says, he will not acquit the wicked unless, of course, there is a Savior on their behalf that can take their guilt from them and upon himself, which Christ has done. His goodness, there is a limit to it. You have one lifetime, one lifetime. Not one chance, but an entire life to get right with God. Or do it your way and go to your place. It is an ultimatum. By, by being God, he has that is his sovereign prerogative to give ultimatums. Jesus said, unless you likewise repent, you will perish. And he does not lie. So when Romans, and when Paul writes to the Romans, he says this. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? You see, it's connected. That goodness is connected not to what kind of career I have or how successful family man I am or whatever it may be. That goodness is connected to God making a place for me at his table in heaven forever. And so he says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Romans 2, 4. Forbearance, putting up with all this junk, long suffering, painful to the heart of God. Then he says, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. It is God's goodness that gets us there. So God is good. Regardless of what happens, he is good. Whether he lets me into heaven or not, he is good. But it dem he demonstrates that goodness by making a way for sinners such as me and you to enter in. Herod never entered in. 
He persecuted the church to his death. And now we'll pick up the story here and let it develop, hopefully, uh, these very thoughts. Verse 20, now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Well, he, Herod controlled the food. And so they got in this riff with each other, but they had to reconcile. It would be in their favor. This receiving food from uh, Jerusalem, which Herod, uh, the, the area where he, he was uh, ruling, goes back likely to the days of Solomon, First Kings chapter 5. Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. Well, Hiram was, of course, from that neck of the woods. And so that's likely where it goes back to. Either way, Herod has the power. And Blastus, which is an interesting name in our language, it's kind of offensive, is it not? But anyhow, uh, he, is the, he becomes the mediator between the people and Herod. So they buddied up to Blastus, and uh, he has Herod's ear, and it, he is a mediator. He creates this opportunity for them to make peace. But no one, is, or at least no mention about this Herod killing James. God and his people, they, they were mindful of it, but these folks weren't, because oh, this is an indication, is it not, that to some people, humanitarian efforts are more important than the spiritual efforts. They should go together. But the primary, because what does it, gain, you know, what does it benefit if you gain the world, lose your soul? What, what matter does it is it if you go to hell full? It, um, it is a perspective that God does not want people to lose sight of. So he teaches it in his word to us that we can teach it and share it with others. Verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. So this is the word of Herod. He gets to give a speech. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus, who was alive during these day, this time, he tells us that Herod was 54 years old when he did this. Now, it really doesn't matter too much, maybe a little bit. He had 54 years to get right with God. Josephus writes, he put on a garment made entirely of silver and a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who, took, who looked intently upon him. A little flowery, but he's making his point. So here he is in this garment that is made like uh, Norwex, <laughs> it's, it's got silver in it, and and but it's it's silver and it's shiny, and the sun is on it, and he's like glowing, and the people are you know fawning all over him because they want the food. And uh, Josephus also writes tells us that many of these people rejoiced when Herod died, so this was not genuine. 
the spotlight is really not on the people. It's on what happened to this persecutor of the apostles. Verse 22, and the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, logic would ask, have you heard the voice of God speak? How would you know what God sounded like unless you heard him speak? Or is it something you just made up? Well, Luke indicates that uh, he, he tells us this because he, where he's going is that there's a, a poetic justice coming to Herod. And the, while Luke was not around, Luke is the author, the human author. Of course, the Holy Spirit is the divine author. But he, Luke is the one that put this together. And he wasn't present. He likely wasn't even a Christian at this point. He might have been, but he wasn't there. But he gets this from those who were there, and he gets their perspective on it, which is, is right. Now, in addition to Herod attacking the church, now he is pretending to be worthy of divinity, being recognized as God. And God is going to take issue with this in front of the, the Christians and leave it to the Christians to spread this message. These people were spiritually out of their minds. Uh, an angel could have come down and said to them, Are you crazy? He's no God. Why would you even say such a thing? Well, because we want that food. <laughs> that would be their real motive. The world is fascinated with itself. The world is impressed with itself. And it does some impressive things as, hum as its humans go. But not unless God opens up. The knowledge. Man would never have harnessed electricity, for example, to use it as we, we use today, had God not opened this knowledge up. Most of humanity had gone without electricity, with the exception of a lightning bolt or a platypus, and really wasn't a lot going on that man could, could do with it. And, and so because man is impressed with himself, he's rather content boxing out God. He's content without truth. And, of course, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. The world doesn't know that, incidentally. And if they've heard of it, they don't necessarily believe it. And then it's up for us to machete our way through all of the jungle that is blocking the light of the truth from getting in. And that's going to take a lot. Some, some who reject the Creator delight in the creation. And this is a great sin. It's identity theft. The identity of God is, 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 is reassigned to something else, to anyone else. Visible creation bears witness to an invisible creator. An invisible creator. The writer of Hebrews adds, of whom the world was not worthy. He's speaking of the Christians. Because of the Christian's God. The world is not worthy of the message we have because God is above it. But it is available nonetheless. None, none of us deserve salvation. But by the world, in this context, we mean the people opposed to Jesus Christ. We're not talking yet in other places, the context speaks of just all sinners. God so loved the world, not the planet, but the world of people, individuals, that he gave his only begotten son. But 
context where the world is not worthy is that element of society, that culture that is contrary to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God. We come to Christ, we're then saved out of this world system, this world's way of thinking. John 17, 14, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We bear a dual citizenship. Some of you may have three or four. I don't know, I don't know how many. What's the limit you can have? I would think two, but maybe someone's figured out another way. Anyway, coming back to this, the world not worthy of Jesus Christ for two main reasons. One, they refuse to repent, to admit who they are in his presence, not each other's presence. In the presence of God, I am one that has broken his law. That makes me a sinner. And we all are born in sin. And when a little baby is, uh, comes into this world, it's not will they sin, it's when will they sin. Uh, the other that makes the world unworthy of Christ is their rejection of his lordship. They refuse to repent and demonstrate their need. They refuse to come under his authority. No man has any right to make up things about God. No man has any right to make up things about you. That could be slanderous. It would be slanderous. But imagine making up things, just making up stuff about God. And this is routine throughout history. People making up things about God. Well, God helps those who help themselves. Where did you get that from? You just come up with that on your own? Or did you get that from someone else who came up with it on their own? Or can you show me in Scripture? Can you show me where it comes from God? Well, I believe in God. Which one? The Old Testament tells us how many gods there were. Paul said when he got to Athens, there were so many gods. They even had a, a, a sign up, in case we missed you, to the unknown God. And he said, well, let me tell you about this God, because you don't know him. And they were too intellectual. They called him a seed picker, you know. He just picks up knowledge from other people and, and just repeats it. But he really doesn't understand. And there was not a great work he could do in Athens. They were too analytical for him. Their own eyes. Well, men prefer speculation about God and ditch revelation. Let's just make it up as better than having him tell me who he is, because he might tell me to do something I don't like. Well, yeah, that's God. <laughs> you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, which neighbor? <laughs> do I get a choice in this? Peter tried to, you know, who is my neighbor? Uh, anybody close enough to have any influence, interaction with you, that's who your neighbor is. Isaiah 45, verse 22, God says to the prophet, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. What about the one I make up in, in my own image? Uh, you know, why, why reject the friendship with God? Well, he might not let me go to the pub anymore. I might not be able to gamble or... Well, just do the mean things that I do. And I like to do those things so much. Listen, it would be worth it. It's the meaning of the word worship. It's worth it. The world's definition of God, of deity, is substandard. 
And it's carelessly tossed around. So when they said, here's Herod, oh, this is the voice of a god, not a man. They just carelessly throw this out. You know, this brainless is what it is. And, and they can be otherwise very intelligent. I say this often. They can be very intelligent in other areas. You can have a surgeon that is just you know, amazing when it comes to surgery. But he can't fix a faucet. <laughs> a leaky faucet. Me, I just. But when it comes to God, he, he's a blithering idiot. Because his heart is hard. Not because he's born with a defect that cannot be overcome, but it will not be overcome. And again, we're the ones that are entrusted with this is our message. Christ died for sinners, rose again, sits on the throne, and is going to return. And there is no other God. And the world is so insulted by that. But yet they don't practice that with their credit card. They don't have this... <laughs> You know, anybody can use your credit card? Because, I mean, anybody can go to heaven. Can anybody use your? This doesn't work. Well, God was not going to allow the one who just murdered James to get away with being chanted into divinity by a desperate, disingenuous, dim-witted crowd. That's the fact. I'm not trying to insult them. Spiritually, they were dim-witted, reduced to a mob. Throughout history, some has, have strutted around under the delusion of being divine, sinless, the, the epitome of arrogance. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Listen to this. I'm going to just grab one thing out of it, but I'm going to read the two verses. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. This would be in the church and out. Deliver me, Lord, from unreasonable people and from wicked people. And there are those that have no reason when it comes to spiritual things. So while they're flattering Herod, and he relishes the praise. He's loving the attention. He feels that he is the, the great, the savvy politician that has these now loyal subjects because of his method of handling them. But it is sealing his fate, the monster that he was. Ezekiel the prophet addressed the king of Tyre over 500 years before this. But he, Ezekiel in this address is going beyond the king of Tyre to the influence, which is Satan. And Isaiah does a similar thing in Isaiah 14. Letting us know that there's a real devil and he messes with people's heads. And they let him. And they deny he exists. Or they even acknowledge that he exists, but they still let him have his way. Ezekiel, speaking to this king, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas. Yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. Will you still say before him who slays you, I'm a God, but you are a man and not a God and in the hand of him who slays you. 
It's just a dose of reality. It's like, how do you define God? Do you, do, do you really think that, do you know, the Greeks got it right with their, you know, assigning uh, human sinful attributes on, on steroids to these gods? Of course they did not. Nobody tells man who he is like the Bible. Nobody gets up in the sinner's face and says, you need to fix this. And if you don't fix it, you will not be acquitted. You will have to deal with it for all eternity. Are you prepared for that? And they scoff and they mock. Spare us from those who are unreasonable. The Bible's boast goes deeper than these profound statements. It backs it up. What makes the prophet Ezekiel and Isaiah, whom I've quoted so far this morning, what makes their voice worth listening to? Well, the prophecies that they laid out. When they said something would happen, when they made a prediction and it happened, nobody else is doing this. Not uh, Certainly not with near the regularity. Verse 23, Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> well, of course, there's not these giant, you know, Worms, he's <laughs> just gnawing on him, eating him like that. That's not the idea. Luke, when he writes this, now he's a physician. Uh, they, that's, you know, he, he's a medicine man. And he doesn't want to go into what kind of condition this is. He just, let me tell you what happened. This guy had some serious parasites, and they ate him from the inside out. And how do we know? We saw them. Well, of course, again, he wasn't there. The witnesses, he had no reason to doubt. They concluded clearly because of the timing and the events that this was a direct judgment of God. And history, history uh, has others. Uh, well, there's one in Second Chronicles 21, and is a Jewish king. But there's Galerius, a Roman Caesar, who got uh, Diocletian to really put persecution on the church. One of the worst of all the Caesars to persecute the Christians because of Galerius, who then becomes a Caesar. And he gets smitten with the almost identical uh, ailment. And it is, it is documented in secular history. So this is not far-fetched. We're not going sci-fi here. This is a reality. Uh, the, uh, there was an outburst of parasites in, from this man's body, and it made headline news. Second Peter chapter 2. The Lord knows how to deliver the, the godly out of trials and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He knows how to do this. And he's talking about Lot, incidentally. Peter's referencing Lot, but it's a general statement. It, 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 Lot is his you know, springboard for the point that he's making. But the point is, God knows how to deliver. Peter was persecuted. He, he was delivered from the sword of this Herod. And so many years later, he writes this letter to Christians who are being persecuted. And he tells them, number one, I've been where you are. Number two, God knows how to deliver you. And number three, the day is coming for me when he's not going to deliver me because he told me that. And I believe it. And, of course, church history says Peter was indeed Martyred. So the man who murdered the, a hand-picked servant of Jesus Christ dies a horrid death. And that's not the worst thing that's going to happen to that man. The worst thing that's going to happen to him is hell. 
And it is, um, uh, it is insane to think that because you've made it through tough times in this life, you're somehow going to make it through hell. Well, I'll, may, I'll figure it out. You know, I'll just make a raft or something. <laughs> I'll just buddy up with some other people. Uh, you, you, you're just magnifying your, your ignorance and your defiance, and it's not necessary. Is it going to make you better at anything doing this? Absolutely not. And he was eaten by worms and died. Again, Galerius, some 250 years later, would be, you know, for those of you who scoff at the Bible, oh, that's just a Bible story. Well, we'll read up on Galerius. You'll find out it's not. It's interesting how quick people were willing to believe the writings of Julius Caesar and yet not the collective writings of those of the Bible. Many of them, most of them, never even met each other or lived at the same time. Well, according to Josephus again, he endured a terrible pain for five days before he died. And this ends the second Jerusalem persecution. This is what, what happened. Matthew 25, verse 30. Jesus gives a parable and he makes this point at the end of the parable about those who are against God. Cast out the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's telling you what happens to those who think they're going to survive hell. They're going to be in pain and they're going to be angry. Thus the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And it will be too late. And if you recoil at that and you say, I don't believe that, then go back to he will not acquit the wicked. I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He says that twice to them. They come to Christ, his disciples, and say, did you hear what Pilate did? Did you hear about this other disaster with this wall falling on these people and killing them? Were they worse sinners than us? And he says to them, I'm telling you right out, unless you repent... Unless you get right with God, no matter what happens to you, this is going to happen to you. You're going to perish. And that does not mean you will be annihilated in a state of unconsciousness. You will be very much aware of your misery. Ergo, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth. To back this up, God has given us an armory of prophecy. Fulfilled being fulfilled, and to be fulfilled. Uh, just everything for like a cashless society. The Bible has called that at least 2,000 years before it's even been con conceived. And here we are. We're at a time where we are fast approaching a cashless society. In fact, we're here. And so, uh, in contrast to the impenitent, when a believer dies... Their redemption is complete. There's no more suffering. There's no more chance of backsliding. It's done. We will be like Christ. We will never be equal to Christ, nor do we care to be. But we will be Christ-like in the sense that we will be sinless. We will never again be susceptible to death, to temptation, to trial, to sin. Revelation 21.4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. 
So you can come to God and you can say, yeah, well, what about this? Or what about that? And I don't know. Or you can say, I want that. That's what I want. No more tears. No more dying. No more suffering. All pain is the direct result of sin, without exception. A mosquito's bite is the result of a curse upon creation because man refused to obey. And the only way out is through Jesus Christ. And he's got more moves than anybody could ever number. You do well to place your faith with him than going around following the routine of abject sinners and just making up things about heaven and eternity. And so when you say, well, I believe in God, the question stands, which one? The one made up by humans or the ones made up by humans or the one who reveals himself to humans? Uh, to say you believe in God, big deal. So does Satan. He's still Satan. It takes more than just acknowledging that there is a God. You have to join up with him, line up with him, become a citizen in his kingdom, find out what he wants, and you watch what happens to you. You will start singing with the righteous, praising the Lord, talking about his goodness, his mercy, his great profound mercy that makes it almost impossible for Satan to mess with in an individual believer's life. No matter what you do, for those who are genuinely citizens of the kingdom, they cannot be kicked out. You will not have <laughs> be without your passport if you trust Christ. How do you say, well, we're sin abounded. Grace did much more. That's such a very simple formula. Don't let Satan come along and try to take that from you. Oh, yeah, well, what about, oh, yeah, well, what about, well, if you turn into a blasphemer, an apostate, then, of course, you know, you've chosen to do that. There's no force on earth that can make you do that except you. Verse 24, or would you, pardon me, or would you rather just be some drone because some theologian told you to be a drone? Uh, or you would just, well, why? Why be afraid of the freedom that Christ gives to us, the grace that we have? Many times we don't want to show Christian kindness because we're afraid. We're afraid the other person is going to take advantage of us. We're afraid they're going to see some weakness in us and exploit it. Instead of just trusting God. I'm going to show you grace. I don't know what you're going to do, but I know what I'm going to do. Now, I mean, that doesn't, that's not for all situations. I mean, if there are certain situations where you, you can't show grace to someone. Isaiah even talks about you can't show grace to a fool. You, you know, as Jesus said, they'll turn and trample you. If, if you're trying to break into my house, it won't be grace you'll be encountering. If you come try to hurt my family and by, 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 you know, breaking and entering. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I, I do funerals for free. I mean, it's, that's grace. Because, see, if you, don't, if you don't understand that, then you might have a problem where you, you're really not presenting a solid witness to the world. Uh, the Amish... How many people sign up to be an Amish because of the way they think? And although they may have correct views about salvation, how God saves people, they may not have correct views about how we are to conduct ourselves in this life. Okay, let's get back to this. Verse 24. 
But the word of God grew and multiplied. The word of God strengthened believers and made more believers. The murdering of James did not benefit Herod. The murdering of James did not benefit anyone. This is a profound contrast between the opposing forces which were against the believers and then the believers. Herod dies, but the word of God, that grew, that multiplied because the believers were multiplied. So we notice carefully that that disjunctive, but, indicates the contrast. And it is vital. And so it has been through the centuries. Every time the church, is, you know, the church has been attacked, down through the centuries, sooner or later, those who have opposed Christ are swept aside. And the word of God continues on. In contrast to the word of Herod, the great orator, giving his speech, the voice of a God. That brought destruction. But the proclamation of Jesus Christ, that uh, the proclamation includes his death, his resurrection, as I mentioned earlier, and his return for the forgiveness of sins to all who would come. Christ does not have anyone, whosoever wills, come. You, you can't earn it. You can't be good enough to receive it. If you say, well, I'm just not good enough. Well, you know that. Big deal. I'm not good enough either. Oh, but you're a better man than me. That's true. (laughs) Of course it's not. (laughs) Nor would I want it to be. My flesh would, no question, leap all over that. The proclamation of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins to all who comes. We Christians have to pray for a chance to share the gospel. Acts chapter 4, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is in jail writing this letter, as for me, this is his prayer request, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, he would not speak without the Spirit leading him. And we're going to get this. In fact, we get to chapter 13 next session, and the Holy Spirit says, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work of ministry. He's got a fantastic section of Scripture that I think, uh, sadly, many Christians pass over, this being led by the Spirit. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. There are those out there, accomplished Bible teachers, saying, I cringe when I hear a Christian say that God spoke to me. Well, then what does it mean? My sheep hear my voice. I mean, what, what, how do you do this? How do you come to these conclusions? So that just passed away when, when, when he says, separate to me, uh, Barnabas and Saul. That's it? None of us get any of that anymore? Uh, a pastor, does he just preach what he feels like preaching? Or does he go before the Lord and say, do you, what do you want me to say? In the early years of ministry, it was, all, it was a lot of hard work and fun, just giving facts and truths, and they, there was a need for that. But I hope I'm in my prime of ministry, and now it's more, what do you want said? From what I have in front of me or from anywhere else in your word, what do you want me to say? And he says, you're doing a fantastic job. <laughs> 
okay, I've not heard that, but I know his voice and I'm waiting for it. But won't he say one day, well done, good and faithful servant? Yes. Colossians 4, Paul again, still in jail. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. And, of course, Paul was always careful. I'm not in chains because of Rome. I'm in chains for Christ. I'm the prisoner of Christ. How shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You're not talking about a pulpit preacher. We're talking about Christians sharing their faith. It includes the pulpit. The church is never safe from attack. Never. But it is a Bible-believing church is safe from defeat. And I don't like it like any more than you do. I wish we could be in this bubble insulated from the attacks from within and from without. But it just isn't that way. Our Lord, war- our Lord warned us about attacks in Matthew 13. Attacks upon the church. He gave the parable of the tares, the wheat that... Uh, was, well, the, the weeds that looked like wheat a little bit mixed in with the, real, with the real wheat. Sneaky enemies infiltrated the church, an external attack. And then he gave a parable about the birds of the air. The seed, the mustard seed was planted, the smallest of seeds, Christ said, uh, in relative, relative to what he, where he was and, and what he was, the point he was making. And it became this great tree, bigger than all the other herbs. And the birds of the air came and nested in it. And expositional consistency dictates that the birds of the air in context, Satan represents the enemy of God. And so the consequence of abnormal growth, because the mustard seed is not supposed to be this tree. It's supposed to be a shrub. But it comes this tree. How did it get so big? That's abnormal. Have you ever noticed some churches are abnormally large? What makes them abnormal? what they're preaching or what they're not preaching. That's what does it. And to withhold sin from the message that man is doomed without a Savior and still grow, that's abnormal. And the birds of the air will come and they will nest. And many people are attracted to a successful church by their definition. Many people are attracted to a happening church. How many times over the years we've had What kind of programs do you have for our teens? The same one for you, the Word of God. Well, I can't go there. Some of you were just telling me this morning. I didn't want to get it in my head, but it's there. About bouncy houses, churches. (laughs) I, I I didn't get it all, but I don't have to get it all. Why is the church trying to attract people to church by putting up bouncy houses? I I don't get this. Is not the scripture enough precept upon precept, line upon line? Is that not enough for God's people? Preach it, brother. I'm trying. (laughs) Well, anyway, what about steadfast preaching? What about a persecuted church? This is the church of Philadelphia in the book of um, Revelation and the church of Smyrna. Those two churches received no rebuke. I've actually read some commentators try to rebuke the churches. Well, they were getting persecuted because, you know, they didn't like cheese on their burgers. Some nonsense. Then Jesus spoke about leaven. Deliberate, a deliberate mixture from within. 
an internal attack, mixing into the church things that don't belong there, that bloat the church and take it away from being what was intended. And then he said the kingdom of of God is, is like a dragnet. In the end, God will sort it out. 1 Peter chapter 4, For the time has come that judgment, for judgment to begin in the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, I'm almost done. Another 20 minutes, we'll be out of here. <laughs> we'll be done. Verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, this is the next paragraph. The Herod session is over with. Um, the worms got to him before he died. But now we come back to what happened to Barnabas and Saul when they brought relief funds to Jerusalem. Well, they go back to Antioch, where Christians were first called Christians, and they take Mark. We covered him last session, so I'm not going to go into that now. Uh, but to the believer, <clears throat> to move forward with the truth requires the Holy Spirit. And a lot of Christians are afraid of the Holy Spirit because of abuses, I, I suppose. Jesus said this, when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because of the ruler of this, this world is judged. And so he's dealing with Satan, he's dealing with unbelief, and he's dealing with righteousness in the middle of all that. Of sin, man is guilty before God, a holy God. Without conviction of sin, he's doomed. The world has no use for Christ, and so it's not surprising it has no use for us preaching his word. Of righteousness, well, man cannot know what's right or wrong truly, and we're looking at this in a society Let's take your little five-year-old and let's give them a sex change. I, I wouldn't even say to that kind of evil. I, it is, it's just an evil, evil men with weapons have to be stopped by righteous men with weapons. And for us, the primary weapon is the word of God. The world does not know righteousness. Their morality, the Supreme Court can't define obscene. I think that's obscene. But, you know, you can't tell them that. You know, there's a higher judge. Well, of judgment, men are held accountable. And you can tell yourself all day, you know, God knows my, I'm a good person. No, he doesn't. He doesn't agree with that. He thinks you're so bad that his son had to die to rescue you from your so-called goodness. The Bible says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And I'm restraining the original Hebrew language that really emphasizes how dirty we are before a holy God. So I'll close with this. The Holy Spirit, he is the substitute presence of Christ on earth. And he is available to all of us. He convicts, he upholds righteousness. You know what conviction is? Conviction is you're guilty. And here's the evidence. He convicts. He upholds righteousness. He warns of judgment. Judgment's coming. There's no way around that. The Holy Spirit is the one through whom God makes himself available to us. And he is every bit of the Godhead. He's not a lesser partner. And we're going to be introduced more to his work amongst the believers 
beginning in chapter 13, even more, I should say. Well, let's pray. Our Father, this morning, perhaps there is someone listening to me who is not yours. They think they're going to get away with doing life their way. And you will not acquit them. And yet there is a solution. You do not leave us without a solution. It's such a simple one. It's one step to Christ, not 20 steps, not climbing up stairs on your knees. It's one step. It's turn your heart to Christ. Confess that you are not worthy of salvation. You're not worthy of God's love. And yet you want it because he will make it available if you come. Why should God receive you when you won't agree with him? But if you do agree, face the facts. Be more afraid of hell than admitting who you are. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I am not right with you. And I want to be right. I want to turn my back on my old life, my old ways. I want to open my heart to you, to be loved and held by you for all eternity, along with the righteous. When the saints go marching in, I want to be with them. And I ask you to be, from this day forward, not only the one who saves my soul from judgment, but the one who rules over my life, the one who is my Lord and my Savior. And I give my life to you right here. And one more thing, Lord, may I never be ashamed of you. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.